you could turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 9, uh, verses 18 through 35. That's our scripture text for this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be some Bibles on the back table uh, there in the back. And uh, if you don't have a Bible at home, you should feel free to not only take one of those for use during the service, but take it, take it home with you, write your name in it, keep it as your own, bring it back week after week as we study God's Word together. Before we uh, read God's Word in Matthew 9, let's pray together. Our Father, we, we long once again to hear from you, to feed on your word. We know, as, as Jesus told us, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so we come to be nourished by you. And we pray that you would give us ears to hear, minds to understand, hearts that are open. We pray that you would work in us by your spirit, that you would use your word in our hearts and that you would give us a clearer sight of our Savior, that you would move us to worship uh, and transform us into people who follow you day by day. Work in us in this way, we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, our scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 9, beginning with verse 18. While he, that is Jesus, was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had been suffering from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. When the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David! When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. And the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Well, physical suffering is one of the great universal tragedies in life. Every one of us suffers in some way. Maybe it's little ways, right? Daily aches and pains, a cold, a fitful night's sleep. Maybe it's big ways, a chronic illness, a persistent pain, a debilitating disease. And of course, all of us face death. 
Maybe the worst part of physical suffering is actually watching loved ones who are in pain and not being able to help them. Well, sometimes people read of Jesus' healings in the Gospels or they watch certain kinds of religious TV and they get very muddled as they think about their suffering. They begin to think that as a Christian, that really they should be sickness-free. I mean, and, and then when that doesn't happen, they become disillusioned. They begin to doubt that God loves them. He must be mad at me, that, that, that he allows this suffering to continue. Or maybe they begin to doubt that God exists at all. He must not be there. He's not answering my prayers. Of course, others, when they hear about Jesus' healings, it's pure skepticism, right? They, one of the dominant views in our culture is that this physical world is all there is. And to talk of healing is seen as, as dated or naive or superstitious. Well, I'm skeptical myself about the claims of many TV personalities, and there are good biblical reasons for that. And yet we do see, as we read in these chapters, that Jesus came and healed people. We've been looking at Jesus' miracles for a couple of weeks now, and out of the nine miracle stories recorded in these two chapters, chapters 8 and 9, uh, one of those involved Jesus' authority over the elements, the wind and the sea, uh, two of them include Jesus' authority over demons, right, over spiritual powers in this world. And then six of those stories involve Jesus' authority over our physical bodies. There are seven healings that are mentioned, and, and we're twice told that Jesus healed numerous people. Uh, chapter 8, verse 16, he healed all who were sick. And then the last verse of our text this morning, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, healing every disease and every affliction. Well, we want to spend some time this morning uh, thinking about physical healing. So our outline, as you can see in your bulletin on the back, is healing and faith, healing and salvation, healing and discipleship, healing and worship. Well, throughout chapters 8 and 9, faith plays an important role. Uh, The leper comes to Jesus believing that Jesus can make him clean. The centurion comes believing that Jesus can heal his sick servant without a word. The disciples have little faith, according to Jesus, in light of their fear at the wind and the waves. The demons know who Jesus is, which is not quite what we mean by faith, but they do recognize Jesus' authority. And the paralytic's friends showed faith by bringing him to Jesus. And that brings us to our passage this morning. We have more stories of healings which involve faith. A ruler comes to Jesus. His daughter is dead. But this ruler says in verse 18, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. Notice his confidence in Jesus' authority, in Jesus' power. He knows all Jesus has to do is lay his hand on his daughter, and she will come to life again. There's a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, and she says to herself in verse 21, If only I touch his garment, I will be made well. Again, notice her confidence. And then Jesus responds to this woman in verse 22, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. Finally, we have these two blind men. And they cry out for mercy to Jesus. They they cry out to Jesus as the son of David. You see, they get it. 
They, they, they get it on some level. They see what others don't see. They, they know that Jesus is the Messiah, the King of Israel. He's the son of David. And Jesus asks them directly in verse 28, he says, do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord. So Jesus touches their eyes and says in verse 29, according to your faith, be it done to you. Well, I want to investigate this connection here between faith and healing for a minute. Because sometimes you hear people say, uh, well, you know, just believe and everything will turn out right. Even just believe and, and you'll be made well. Just believe that you'll get better and it will happen. The idea is that somehow there's some intrinsic power in faith itself. As if believing things are going to change makes them change. And yet when we look at the healings in Matthew 8 and 9, we see that it's, it's, there's no power in faith itself. Right? That's not what we're being taught here. We see that in two ways. One is that these people don't just believe. Right? Their faith is not just faith in general that brings their healing. Right? They believe in Jesus. They are, there is an object to their faith. The leper says, you can make me clean. The centurion says, only say the word and my servant will be healed. The ruler says, lay your hand on her and she will live. Even the woman who had the bleeding problem, and there may have been some superstition mixed in with her faith, but she says, if only I touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus asked the two blind men, do you believe that I am able to do this? You see, the Bible never commends sort of generic faith and certainly not faith in faith. It commends putting your trust in the God-enfleshed man, Jesus. Right? Christian faith is, is putting your trust in a person, Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah. And so there's no power in faith generically. Right? These people were believing in Jesus and yet, it's still not the faith that brings the healing at all, is it? Right? Jesus is the one who brings the healing. Uh, the leper believes in Jesus and his power, but Jesus must reach out his hand, touch him, and say, be clean. The centurion believes, but Jesus must say, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. The ruler believes, but Jesus must take the girl by the hand and raise her up from the dead. The woman believes, but Jesus must say, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. Now that one may be open to misunderstanding, right? He says, your faith has made you well. What does he mean by that? It's actually even more confusing in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, There we're told that as soon as she touches Jesus' garment, she is healed. And yet, you know, make no mistake, it's, it's still not her faith that heals her, but Jesus, right? Uh, in the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 5, verse 30, we're told Jesus perceived in himself that power had gone out from him. Now, I don't fully understand how all of that works, but the point remains that power went out from Jesus. Faith in and of itself, even faith in Jesus in and of itself, doesn't heal anybody because faith has no power. Jesus is the one who brings healing because Jesus is the one who has authority to do so. The God who made your body has authority over it to put it back together again. 
And now there is a connection between faith and healing in this passage. Jesus brings healing to those who believe in him. Let it be done for you as you have believed, he says, or according to your faith, be it done to you. Faith is receptive of the power of Jesus. Now, we have some questions about that, and I'm going to qualify that in certain ways in a minute, certain important ways. But for now, I just want us to see that Jesus came, according to these chapters, Jesus came to heal those who trust in him. That's what we see in these stories, Jesus coming and healing those who trust him. Okay, so much for the connection of faith and healing. Let's talk about healing and salvation You know, it's so easy to get caught up in the miraculous nature of these healings that we miss the bigger picture. We mentioned this the past two weeks, but it's worth mentioning again that Jesus' physical healings are a sign of his ability, of his authority to forgive sin. That's what Jesus said back in chapter 9, verse 6, that his healing was a sign that he has authority to forgive our sins. Sickness, disease, and death are the result of sin's entrance into the world. Uh, That doesn't mean that your sickness is necessarily uh, the result of your sin. Uh, It simply means that the very presence of these things is the result of human rebellion against God. The world has been broken by our sin. Part of the curse on sin is death and all that leads up to that. So the number one thing that Jesus is communicating by his healing is that he has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's what these stories are telling us. Jesus has authority on earth to forgive sins. All of these miracles are a demonstration of Jesus' authority. Now, by saying that, I don't mean, of course, that Jesus is then unconcerned with our bodies. He's just making a spiritual point and our bodies doesn't matter. That's that's not what I mean. Jesus is not unconcerned with our bodies. In fact, I think that Jesus will heal every Christian fully when he returns. Our salvation is not merely spiritual. It includes the forgiveness of sins, which is, of course, the most important part. It includes adoption as the children of God. It includes the healing of our souls, God working in us to make us people who love him and love our neighbors. But it also includes the renewal of our bodies. I love the way C.S. Lewis uh, puts this imagery in a couple different places. One is in The Great Divorce, but he talks about people in heaven, uh, we might say in the new creation, and and he describes them as these large, beautiful, shining, naked, yet clothed beings that if you saw them now, you would be tempted to fall down and worship. That's where we're headed, this glorious resurrection body. But we're not there yet. Even those whom Jesus healed weren't there yet. I mean, think about these people who were healed in this chapter, chapter, these two chapters. The leper was healed of his leprosy, but he still grew old, and his body wore down, and he died. Uh, The centurion's servant was the same. Peter's mother-in-law didn't die of whatever caused that fever, but she might have died from some other infection later on. The blind men received their sight, but did their eyes grow dim in their old age? We don't know. I'm not trying to depreciate the work of Jesus here, but I'm trying to point out that there's something better coming. Jesus' healing of these people, Jesus' healing of these people, it's a sign. A sign that he had authority to forgive sins. A sign that he is the one who will one day remove all the effects of sin. Jesus did come to heal us body and soul. 
Now, some insist, right, that therefore Christians should never get sick. Maybe you've run into this before. Maybe you haven't. But there are some people who insist that Christians should never get sick. Christians uh, should be able to be fully healed now, right? You just believe enough and God will make you well. Uh, there's, a, there's a slogan even that, that the phrase is, there's healing in the atonement, people will say. And what they mean by that is because Jesus died on the cross for sin and, and put death to death, that, that therefore we should be healed. Some even assert that if you are sick as a Christian, it's because you're not believing enough, right? You're, you're, you don't have enough faith, Of course, now you're not only sick, but you're also feeling guilty as well. But there's no promise in the Bible that every believer will be sickness-free today. There's no promise that every believer will be disease-free today. There's no promise that every Christian will be pain-free today. It's just not there. You will search in vain to find that promise. We can pray and we can ask, and sometimes God will be pleased to grant our requests But the way Paul talks, hardships are really the stuff of the Christian life. Isn't there healing in the atonement? Well, yes, there's also resurrection and a new creation. Those who think we should have perfect health as Christians today are really shooting too low. See, there's a promise in the Bible, not that every believer will be pain-free now, but one day will be not only pain-free, but will be raised in glorious bodies. That's the promise that we hold on to. Jesus came to heal us body and soul. Yes, he did. He has begun to heal us internally now, and he will heal us fully at his return. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians. He says, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. That's how Paul describes our outer selves, wasting away. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. Do you see what Paul is saying there? He's saying our bodies, our bodies are wasting away. Our spirits are being renewed, and, and we long, we long for our new bodies. Our goal is not to escape our bodies, but to receive a resurrection body at Jesus' return. So faith is receptive of the power of Jesus, and when we believe in Jesus, our sins are forgiven. We're adopted as the Father's children. We, we're given the spirit to indwell us and renew us, and we're given the hope of rising from the dead on that last day at the climax of history to dwell with our Father, with his Son, in the new creation for eternity. Jesus' healings were a sign and a foretaste of that, a foretaste of the fullness of his work at the resurrection. But they were just that. They were just a sign and a foretaste. They were the appetizer, not the main course. For that, we wait. Now, does that mean, you might ask, does that mean that Jesus will never heal anyone physically today? Do you never pray for physical healings? Well, not at all, right? James uh, taught in the book of James, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. 
And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Uh, We obviously don't have time to talk about everything in that verse, but this much is clear. We are encouraged to pray for those who are sick. And we can know that God may be pleased to answer those prayers by healing the sick person. I say maybe pleased to answer in that way because we have other examples in Scripture where God was not pleased to answer in that way. So Paul uh, had some kind of most likely physical affliction. Three times Paul pleads with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, he says. But he, but he said to me, Paul says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. All right, so, so can we pray for physical healing? Of, of course we can. We should pray when we're sick, when others are sick, we should pray. We should ask God to bring healing. Can we pray with confidence? Well, yes, we can pray with confidently that our Father who loves us and will take care of us hears our prayers. And yet our prayers are not magic, right? It's not, it's not automatic. It's not like a vending machine. We must let God be God. And we trust him to do what he knows in his infinite wisdom is best for us. You know, maybe God is doing something bigger in you than making you physically well right now. Paul says God gave him this affliction to keep him from being proud. Maybe God is using this difficulty in your life for his good purposes. That certainly doesn't mean that you will ever know what those purposes are in this life. Most of the time, we shouldn't even guess right, why we're undergoing some difficulty or trial. But you can trust God in the midst of that, that his purposes are good, that he knows what's best for you, and he's working that out according to his wisdom. So, of course, when it comes to physical health, we, we try to maintain it. We go to doctors, we eat well, we take medicine, and we pray that God would make us well when we are sick. And then we leave the results to his wisdom and love. Okay, so we've talked about healing and faith and healing and salvation. Now we're going to talk about healing and discipleship. Obviously, we're talking a lot about healing, but as we look at this passage as a whole, it's really more about discipleship than healing. It's really more about Jesus than anything else, but from our side, it's more about discipleship. Chapters 8 and 9 have this definite structure to them. Maybe you noticed it. There's a pattern. There are three miracle stories, then there's a discussion of discipleship, and then there are three more miracle stories, and then there's a discussion of discipleship, and then there are three more miracle stories, And then there's chapter 10, which is a whole chapter devoted to the mission of the disciples. Uh, To put this differently, like these two chapters present Jesus in his whole person as Savior and Lord, right? He came to save us from sin and its consequences. And part of that is calling us to follow him as his disciples, to dedicate our lives to his service. And so, for example, when Peter's mother-in-law is healed, she immediately begins to serve Jesus. And then we have the the three healings that we read about today, and they are a picture of what happens when we come into contact with Jesus. So like the woman in the crowd, we come believing that Jesus can save us from our sin. Like the young girl, Jesus raises uh, raises us up and gives us new life. He makes us whole spiritually and gives us the hope of being made whole physically at his return. Like the blind man, Jesus opens our eyes when we come and have faith in him. He opens our eyes so that we can see the world as it really is. 
so that we can see God as the creator and sustainer of all things. We see the glory of God as the purpose of all that, all that happens and all that is. We see Jesus as redeeming the creation for himself and redeeming a people out of the world to be his bride. We see the resurrection and the wedding feast at the end of history as our great hope. When we come to Jesus, he opens our eyes to see the world as it really is, just like he opened the eyes of these blind men. And of course, finally, like the mute man, right, Jesus opens our mouths. He enables us more and more to, to pray and to praise and to sing and to witness to his great work in our lives. So when Jesus saves us, he, he renews us, he gives us new life, and then he calls us to use that new life to serve him as his disciples. Jesus came to lead those he has healed as our king. Jesus is the Savior and Lord of his people. He's the, the great King of Israel, the King of heaven and earth. We are those who are saved and therefore are disciples, followers, subjects of King Jesus. King Jesus, who uses his authority to give new life to his disciples. Of course, that leads us to the last topic, right? We, we, healing and worship. I want you to notice, right, notice the response of people in these two chapters to Jesus' work again and again. Some people serve him. Uh, some follow him. The disciples marvel at his stealing of the wind and the sea. The Gentiles ask Jesus to leave in fear. Uh, the crowds are afraid and glorify God. And in our text this morning, when the ruler's daughter is healed, we are told that the report of this went through all that district. When Jesus heals the two blind men, though Jesus sternly said, see that no one knows about it, they nevertheless went away and spread his fame through all the district. See, when the demon-possessed man in verse 32 is healed, in verse 33, the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. See, the goal of all Jesus' work, the trajectory from his healings, the goal of his healings, the goal of his death on the cross, the goal of his work is worship. It's bringing glory to his Father in heaven, bringing people to the point of awe and wonder at God's work in the world. Jesus is worthy of our worship, right? though not everyone has eyes to see it. This explains why Jesus told the blind men not to tell anyone, because Jesus knew there would be opposition to him and his work. And like the Pharisees, who say in verse 34, he cast out demons by the prince of demons. This, of course, is what gives the lie to the thought of, of many that if God would just show up and do a miracle, then I'd believe. Well, God did show up, and he was doing miracles, and the Pharisees explained it away as demonic. Today, we explain it away as, as some natural phenomenon, right, that we just don't yet understand. There must be some rational explanation, we say, when amazing things happen. Surely, it's not as simple as Jesus reaching out his hand and touching people and healing them. Healing, physically and spiritually, right, is ultimately received by faith and comes from Jesus. It's spiritual and internal now. It's physical primarily and fully in the future on that last day at the resurrection. Healing, being made new, is always, right, when Jesus uh, renews us, inside and out, it's always a call to discipleship, including opening our mouths to speak of what Jesus has done so that his fame would go to the ends of the earth. If all this is true, you might wonder why people don't turn to Jesus more to have their sins forgiven, right? To, to receive the hope of the resurrection. 
Why is it that we're so slow to believe in what he has done in the cross and in the resurrection and bearing our sin and rising from the dead that we could be forgiven and have new life? Well, one of the reasons we see by way of contrast in this passage, notice there's something that each of these people have in common that we haven't mentioned yet, and that is that all of these people who come to Jesus were desperate. They had desperate situations and a desperate faith. I mean, the leper, right? He was a social outcast. He was alienated and alone. He needed to be healed in order to have any real meaningful life. The centurion's servant was on the verge of death. The paralytic could do nothing but beg to have his daily needs met. The ruler's daughter was dead. The woman had been bleeding for 12 years which made her a social outcast and unclean in that culture. She was unable to participate in society or worship. She would have been lonely and tired. The blind man was, of course, the blind men were blind. There was nothing that could cure them. See, these are people who realize the limits of human ability and the precariousness of human life. See, as long as you're self-satisfied and self-reliant, you won't come to Jesus. As long as you don't realize the desperate nature of your situation, as long as you fake it that everything's okay and everything's fine, you, you won't come to Jesus. We are each under the burden of guilt and sin. We're each facing death and judgment. Maybe your life is physically going great for now, but sin has a 100% mortality rate. And won't you ask Jesus then to open your eyes? to give you the sight of your sin that you need, the sight of your weakness, the sight of your impotence, to give you a sight of him as your savior, to enable you to see what the blind men saw, that Jesus is the son of David, the king of Israel, the one who has authority to heal the sick and raise the dead and forgive sins. And then won't you ask him to open your mouth as well, that you might proclaim his goodness for all to hear. If we come to him and if we ask, he will listen. Let's pray. Jesus, we pray that you would renew us, that you would, that you would pour out your spirit into our hearts, that we would be made new, that we would um, be renewed day by day, as Paul talks about. We pray, Jesus, that you would give us a clearer sight of who you are, of what you've done, a clearer sight of our sin, a clearer sight of the holiness of our Father in heaven, that you would grant us repentance and faith to look at you and trust in you and believe in you. And we pray that you would give us hope, hope in the day of resurrection, hope in the day of your return. Help us not to demand that that day be now. Help us not to demand uh, our, our future now. Help us to long for it. Help us to yearn for it. Help us to, to pray for it. And yet help us to wait for it, knowing that you will bring it in your good timing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.